Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And I'm Mike Cordes. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. So, Rock and Mike, you are now an official album addict. Thanks for coming aboard. I got the robe. I can't wait. <laughs> <Ow>. <laughs> with a special monogrammed uh, handkerchief, too, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah red yeah. with the gold trim. Yeah. <laughs> Steak knife set, everything. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And to the listeners, when you see that it's an album addict show, that means it could be any combination of the three of us, so I'm pretty excited about it. Also on this episode, we have a returning guest co-pilot with us, the voodoo child, Davey Lee Smith. Davey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm back, but this time I brought a friend with me. Let me introduce you to Mr. Handy Dandy Notebook. It's a pleasure being back on here. How y'all doing tonight? Very good. Very, very good. Can't go wrong with mead, man. (laughs) sweet cool beans (laughs) so on this episode we're going to talk about joe satriani's 1987 album surfing with the alien davy how'd you discover joe satriani in this particular album i got exposed to joe satriani not through my mom's collection of albums this time i got through it uh, in my childhood playing a playstation game how about that it was the original formula one for the sony playstation and it had two satriani tracks on there Back to Shalabelle from Flying in a Blue Dream, and Summer Song from the Extremist albums. And when I heard those two songs, it felt like a gun to my head. I just, my brain took a bullet whenever I heard those two tracks. And those two songs remain two of my favorite Satriani songs, and they still are. So I was blown away hearing those two. I got into Surfing with the Alien, hearing the title track, and Satch Boogie during, during the days of Guitar Hero. And I'll just uh, leave it at that. So uh, I then uh, decided to grab the What Happens Next album. And then after that, I I listened to it and I enjoyed that album. That what kind of inspired me to go and uh, start collecting some of Joe Satriani's back catalog. I decided to get Surfing with the Alien and Flying in a Blue Dream sometime after that. So I'm still kind of collecting his back catalog right now. So I'll just leave my uh, opinions on Surfing with the Alien as we go through the album. Excellent. Rock and Mike. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this on the way up. I, I really don't remember what caused me to buy the album. I, I know I had it on cassette. I had it on. F- I had it fairly early, and it was due to Satch Boogie. That was the one that I had heard. But I don't remember. I don't know if it was just kind of I needed a filler on Columbia House, and I had heard Satch Boogie, and I grabbed it. I'm pretty sure that's how I ended up with it. But I've had a version of it somehow ever since. All right. Great. I think it was like around 1988. I was a freshman in high school, and uh, I had to take remedial math with Betsy Barrows. You remember her, dude? Uh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was like the female embodiment of Ed Grimley. She was awesome. Um, but uh, oh, No way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but remember John Frappier? Yeah. 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 yeah Frappier was like listening to it on his Walkman. I was like, dude, where are you listening? He was like, like Joe Satriani. He's like, oh, okay. I think I've heard of him. And then like... Ian's uh, girlfriend at the time, Karen Whitcop, was like always a big, oh yeah, yeah, a yeah big yeah. fan of Satch's too. So I, I heard a little bit about him. I saw like a poster for or like a, a promo for him in like Rip Magazine. Um, but uh, I think it was around 1989. Oh, also backing up a little bit, I was kind of vaguely aware of him because I was starting to become more aware of Steve Vai because I'd gotten Skyscraper and back mm-hmm. in '88. And I just started getting into Metallica. So the whole Vi Hammett Satriani connection was starting to kind of come more into. Uh, we're, we're in my forefront anyway, I should say. In the summer of 89, Matt the Rat Deal and myself got a job uh, pruning trees, uh, apple trees, and we got, took our first week's paychecks and went down to Main Street Records in Northampton. Nice. And I got two albums. I got the Randy Rhodes Tribute album and I got Not of This Earth. Mm-hmm. 
I was hooked on Not of This Earth as soon as I heard it. And then that fall, I ended up getting um, Surfing with the Alien. And I want to say, like, Flying in a Blue Dream like came out, like, a little bit afterwards. So it was, like, an influx of, of Saturni for me. Um, so, yeah, I've been a pretty big fan ever since. All right. So there I was. I think it was 1990, working overnight, stocking shelves at a big box retail store, listening to Steve Vai's new album, Passion and Warfare, an album I still dig to this day. I was getting into a, a lot of the post-Van Halen shred guitarists that were very popular around this time. You know, your Vi, your Malmsteen, Gilbert, Becker, Friedman. I mean, there was like a whole influx of these kind of players. And I was very into that style of playing. A co-worker of mine came up to me and asked me if I had heard of Joe Satriani. He told me he was, this was a guy who was a guitar teacher of Vi and Kirk Hammett. And I hadn't heard of him. He'd flown way under my radar. So this co-worker let me borrow his copy of Joe's first album, Not of This Earth, and I was impressed with that record. It led me to pick up what was Joe's newest album at the time, Flying in a Blue Dream. I love that album. So then I discovered that there was an album between the two, Surfing with the Alien, and I'm a big comic book nerd. So when I saw the album cover with the Marvel comic Silver Surfer on, and I bought the CD right up, and it basically cemented my approval of Mr. Satriani. So now I'll give you some basic facts about this record. And who needs Encyclopedia Britannica to give you the facts when you have Wikipedia? <laughs> Surfing with the Alien is the second studio album by American rock guitarist Joe Satriani, released on October 15th, 1987 on Relativity Records. It was produced by Joe Satriani and John Cuniberti and was recorded at Alpha and Omega Recording and Hyde Street Studios, San Francisco, California. It reached number 29 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified platinum by the RIAA. And here is the musician's lineup card. We have Joe Satriani on guitar, electric sitar, keyboard, drum programming, percussion, and bass. Bongo Bob Smith on drum programming and percussion. Jeff Campitelli on drums and percussion. And John Cuniberti on percussion. All music on the album was composed by Joe Satriani. Okay, let's do a track-by-track -track analysis of this album. Leading us off is the title track, Surfing with the Alien. Davey, what do you think of this? I am not impressed with this song at all. The riffs do not grab me. The solo is not inspired. I don't think this man's going to be going anywhere. This song is super califragilistic, XPL, atrocious. You liar. <laughs> Whoa. That is all a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Got you guys. But the way to start off this album with the title track, as soon as those chords come in, I am instantly in fanboy mode right now it starts off with a spoken word section i forgot to do research on what they said do you know what they said underneath that yeah. little spoken word bit <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly um, what i have written down yeah, yeah, see, like, wow. okay <laughs> okay we're on the same page <laughs> but it goes into the uh 
those uh, nice chords. And right off the bat, I'm going to start off uh, by saying this uh, throughout the album. Wow, great tone, because that is going to be the theme throughout this uh, podcast for me. And then it goes into a nice main riff passage. And uh, I'm going to start doing some guitar noises. So <laughs> down, 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 down. That instantly grabbed me as soon as I heard that. Now, after a while, as soon as you go into the passage, it does a little whoosh noise. And in my notes, I wrote down, holy tapping trills, Batman, because that tapping trill solo is nuts. And it makes me it makes me wonder what the strings are telling Joe Satriani. They're telling them, stop picking on me after the solo, which is an amazing first solo. It's back to the main riff passage. And uh, the second time after it stops, more whooshes. And I love the start of the second solo. And then the whammy parts are just killer. You got to do that, Ray. You gotta do it. <laughs> we'll you see. We'll see. We shall see, sir. <laughs> Come on. You know you want to. <laughs> After the second solo, it doesn't. It goes into another tapping trill solo. Why not? I wish I could hear that whole outro passage because at the end of the song is one of my pet peeves. The dreaded fade out. <laughs> You don't do that to Joe Satriani. You do not do that. I really want to know what's going on underneath. But like uh, Aaron said, Joe plays bass also. And he, um, you're not going to be going through this album looking for some fancy bass lines or drums uh, with the drums playing by Jeff Campitelli, which unfortunately, it's a drum machine being played throughout the album because Joe Satriani had to, uh, he had a limited budget, so he had to deal with that because uh, Not of This Earth didn't, wasn't a successfully commercial seller. But that, that's what's going on. Uh, I want to address somebody real quick. Uh, hey, Kirk Hammett. Earth to Kirk Hammett. If you are getting this, you need to call your teacher, Joe Satriani, and retake some notes on how to properly use a Wah-Wah. <laughs> Ooh, shot fired. Wow. I'm sure he'll get that transmission. That's probably going to be the ultimate Kirk Hammett insult on this podcast, I think. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, cover art is uh, pretty cool. The original cover art. It's, uh, of course, the title of the song is referred to uh, the uh, Silver Surfer, which is the uh, Marvel comic character, like Aaron mentioned earlier. Also, like on uh, Flying in a Blue Dream, Back to Shalabal refers to Shalabal, another Marvel character. So it's the first single off the album. And it charted at number 37 on the mainstream rock charts. And this song is also considered the 30th greatest guitar solo of all time. And from Album Addicts, Stan Lee, rest in peace. So, so this is not only my favorite track off of this album, but if you guys remember that I mentioned that Stevie Ray Vaughan version of Voodoo Child's Life Returns, my all-time favorite, this comes in at number two. This track is fantastic. It's a grade A to infinity, like you would say, right? Whoa, whoa, stop, stop, <laughs> stop, right. stop. You, you're, you're getting a little crazy here, man. You guys just tone it down a notch. Maybe take a little riddling, something. Do what you got to do, but you're, you're just doing some... Somebody's going to stick you in the nut house saying stuff like that. Just be careful. I can't resist. This is one of my favorites. Uh, I understand, but just, you know... But, but yes, there is editing. There is editing. Yes. But yeah, this track is fantastic. Rock and Mike, what do you say? Uh, I like the way it starts too. The same with the I have the you know the, the people talking. That riff I put down, chunky kind of. Mm-hmm. It's not really, but it's kind of chunky. Mm-hmm. And there's just a hint of a little bit of a blues lick, kind of a little. I don't know if you call that a walk where they kind of hammer on um, before Joe comes in with what I call the melodic shred. But I'm gonna kind of he treats that almost like a chorus. So he's just he's got great melody. I mean that's mm-hmm. the whole thing yes, about yeah, about this album. There's great melody. 
there's that harmonic tapping that you were talking about that is fantastic. But my favorite part comes after the second alien swoosh with the plane effect where it comes out. That solo is just sweet. Um, and I like how you can get melody at, with the whammy bar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the melody over it. It's fantastic the way he gets the melody out of it on the song. My only knock on the song is that I do wish there was more going on underneath. Mm-hmm. I, you, can't, you can't say anything negative about Satch's playing, mm-hmm. but I do wish there was a little bit more going on underneath. Um, as far as the artwork, he actually had the title Surfing with the Alien before they were talking about using the Silver Surfer. It was actually somebody in the studio or something was a big comic book fan and suggested the, uh, the, the yeah, Silver Surfer. Yeah, he wasn't. He didn't know anything about the silver surfer yeah he had the title but didn't know anything about the silver surfer um but it's a it's a it's a good track and it's a good way to open up um and definitely i haven't listened to this in so long it just took me right back to those days of like you said vi and becker and just it it put me in a good spot i like the way this starts great well it's kind of cool actually satch is like one of the first guys who actually i mean outside of knowing pipeline was like kind of introduced me towards surf music and satch had his own kind of take on surf music and it wasn't even like, you know, your standard, like, heavy, reverbed kind of twangy guitar. It had to do with rhythm, or the, with the beats per minute. And I think he said it was like 120 beats. Anything that's like 120 beats per minute, it makes for a good surf song. Well, this one, he bumps that up a notch even more. It's about 135 beats per minute. I think Mike and Davey have touched on it before. He's, Sash could write great melodies. And this song is definitely no exception. The melody is really, I, I, I find it catchy and hooky. I, the rhythm playing underneath... I'll be honest with you, I think it's kind of meh. I mean, it's kind of like we did, we were, when we did that, uh, the Baker's Dozen, and we had that band Gamelan. And, is that, Gamelan, you know, yeah. Gamelan, yeah, yeah. You know, fantastic musicians. But the song was kind of a boring vehicle to sell solos. And I said sometimes Satch is a little guilty of that. I think in this song, he might be you know, just a little bit, you know, like phoning it in a little bit. But you can't take away, you know, anything away from the, the melody itself. The melody is awesome. And that tap, that tapping that he does uh, at the first solo break, that's he does he does it with the edge of the guitar pick. That's not actually finger like two handed tapping with the finger. Oh that's, no, kidding! That's what gives it that. Yeah, George Lynch to do it all the fucking time. Yep, I remember watching yeah. Lynch do that. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's cool. Okay. That's right out of the Lynch book, and that's I I fucking love I love the way that sounds, and it's you know it's kind of refreshing at the time. And um, yeah, I I don't want to I can't take much from what Dave already said about uh, the wah playing, but uh, it's really subtle is what I like about his wah playing on this. It's not like that, like, exaggerated, let's start from, like, one end of the fulcrum and then just open it up and then close down. He's not mm-hmm. trying to, like, go all wacky with it. He just kind of, like, puts it in over the melody where he needs to, and I think uh, that there's something to be said for that. And I think that's what you're talking about. At the two-minute, 40-second mark after the second alien whoosh, that that really frenetic... Yeah, yeah. yeah. that is... That's insane. Yeah, I, yeah. I love that part. That's my favorite part of the whole track. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's aces in my book. And, yes... <laughs> Here it goes, my take on the outro melody. I fucking love it, and it is. <laughs> it's, it's like you know, like it's like a little fucking chihuahua having a seizure. It's great, which you know that that would be really kind of great too. I think I would just have an album of listening to that. I could be pretty happy. Chihuahuas having seizures. Oh fuck yeah! <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, it's a good opener, man. It's a good opener. Okay, just so we're clear, if you're unfamiliar with this record, this is entirely a guitar instrumental album, so we're not going to be talking about lyrics or vocals. 
We get a nice palm muted riff and a fast tempo, and Joe plays some good melodies over two separate sections that kind of act as verse and chorus, as if his guitar was the vocalist in the band. Already the album's major flaw is evident, as the drums are programmed by Bongo Bob Smith, with live hi-hats cymbals sometimes and some snares overdubbed by Jeff Campitelli, and it sounds like it. The drums have a cold mechanical precision that hinders the music a little bit, in my opinion. Joe's solos are apparently improvised, and whew, he can shred like nobody's business, mixing in fast melodic passages in with the shredding, and I dig his overall guitar tone. Davey, you said that. There are sporadic whooshing sound effects that make me think of the Silver Surfer flying past our heads. And after a breakdown section, Joe returns to the main riff and solos over the top. There's some good whammy bar work in there as well. As a leadoff track, I think this gets the job done. It's a good one. The next track is Ice Nine. Davey, your thoughts? Wow, great tone. This track pretty much proves that Joe is not on Cloud Nine. He's on Ice Nine. Yep, there's another stupid joke right there. <laughs> but the song refers to the fictional apocalyptic substance uh, uh, book from Kurt Vonnegut's 1963 novel, The Cat's Cradle. Now, since the uh, I just said that it was apocalyptic, I'll get to that in a little bit, but it starts with some start and stop riffs. Uh, not that much uh, riffs playing from Joe from the guitar, but he's got a nice little bass line uh, going on in there with, of course, a, another simple drum beat by uh, Campitelli. But when the solo goes in, it kind of, it kind of maybe that's just me, but it kind of feels apocalyptic. I wonder if that's kind of like uh, playing into the whole uh, uh, Cat's Cradle apocalyptic thing. That's probably just my opinion. But it's a cool solo, and uh, it returns to the main passage once more uh, with some uh, s- uh, little melodic passages going towards the end with another fade-out. Well, at least there's not a lot going on in the, underneath the uh, song whenever it's starting to fade out, but this is another, this is another cool tune. All right. Mike? Uh, right off the bat, I like this one because it's got some funkier bass mm-hmm. in a Check out – there's a couple performances on YouTube where you can kind of see where Joe's gone with this. I like the song. I like the ascending melody, but there's a couple performances. There's one 1988 at the Montreux Jazz Fest where he's doing this track, and it's good. Stu Ham is in his band at the time, and he's nice. playing a slap bass along with the track, and but it's still kind of eh, and he's got a three-piece band. But then there's a 2016 performance where he's got a four-piece band at Hellfest, and that is great. And that version of this song shows what this song really could be. The uh, the guitar tone, I like how it changes, and then just full-out shred solo until around the 140 mark, where he shifts into another gear with some squeals and tapping, and even some backward cymbals, straight out of uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. That little <laughs> sh- sh- which always... That, I'm a sucker for the Beatles, so I always like that kind of stuff. And then back to the opening melody. The studio version does sound, as I said, a bit sterile to me. It's a great song, and like I said, check out those live performances, the 2016 Hellfest, because that's where that's where the essence of that song lives if you see it live. Um, but yeah, another good tune. All right, Ray. 
I was thinking, but I was going to go to what I was going to say, but I was thinking about it as like, if you listen to this and then you listen to Not of This Earth, <laughs> believe it or not, the drum sounds a vast improvement. Which says something sad, for yeah. that one. And I love Not of This Earth. But, yeah, I like uh, it too. Woof. So Ice Nine. What I've liked about this song since I first heard it was the juxtaposition of a crunchy riff, like a la ZZ Top, with these like clean, almost like Prince-style chords. And that's what you get with this song in the beginning. You get a kind of cool-ass bluesy melody that kind of gets answered by those kind of Prince-like crunchy chords. Like, I mean, it could almost be like the chords for, like, you know, Kiss, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Along those hey. lines. And he was a Prince fan, too. So, I mean, it kind of comes through uh, on, on tracks like this. Who isn't? Yeah, yeah. I know, right. To, at the guitar solo, I think, it always sounded to me like he was playing like with a wah pedal, but like he was just messing with a little bit on the first sol- part of the solo. Because the first part is like almost a round tone, almost like he's playing with a single coil neck pickup. It's a, I don't know how to describe it other than it just sounds round to me. Because I know it makes no yeah, sense. Fair. But then all of a sudden you get that pick scrape and then he opens it all the way up and then it gets really crackly and almost like bridge pickup kind of sounding. Oh, okay. I can see that because that's where I was thinking yeah. like, the, like the tone changed almost. Yeah. 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 Then I, I don't know. Yeah, like the second half of it, you mean, right? Yeah. 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 That, that's the impression I got. And I'm basing that off like the Soundgarden stuff on Bad Motorfinger because like, they always mess with like, they wouldn't like play the, like, well, Kim Thale would play with a wah on the soles. But like on Rusty Cage, that's actually like a wah pedal that's three, three quarters depressed. And that's what makes it make that weird kind of guitar tone. Oh, and that's okay. what it kind of reminds me of the tone in this part. And then at the three-minute, nine-second mark, we get some superb outro soloing. So Ice Nine is fine by me. Yeah. Well, like Davey said, the song title comes from the Kurt Vonnegut science fiction novel Cat's Cradle, in which the substance Ice Nine is an alternative structure of water that freezes at room temperature. For this track, there's more space in the riffing, with the tempo set at a marching pace and the drums still suck ass. (laughs) (laughs) I really dig the primary guitar-monized melody. It really catches my ear. The solo is harsher, though, especially in the second half. Ray, you explained why that is. It sounds more wild and attacks you with a whammy bar. It almost sounds like a wounded animal in spots. <laughs> there are what I believe are either clean or possibly acoustic guitar acts. Is, you oh, know what I mean? Yeah, I hear that mean. throughout. Yeah, yeah. Down, down. Yeah. yeah. They come in and they kind of frame the measures of the melodic sections. They provide a little variety in the sonic textures of it. They're good. Two tracks in and Joe's hooking me. And you notice that he gets a Chewbacca noise in there, too, somewhere? That... <laughs> it's fucking mint, dude. Totally. The following track is Crushing Day. Davey, what do you say? Wow, great tone. This track is awesome. It's the heavy metal-inspired song on the album, and uh, by the title, it's going to obviously crush our heads. More great uh, main passage riffs. At the 250 mark, it's the start of the uh, section that kind of reminds me of Summer Song. That that start of that uh, solo passage kind of reminds me of Summer Song. And at the 3-minute three, 3 mark, he gets his Chuck Berry on, which is always a plus for me. Then one last go of the main passage for yet another fade out. 
Joe regretted writing the solo due to it being uh, quite long and it's a bit of a planned out one. But I don't I don't care if it's planned out or not. It still sounds awesome to my ears. For me, this song would be perfect for like a video game soundtrack. <laughs> but then again, I think this whole album pretty much does. So this one's awesome. All right. Mike. Uh, right off the bat, simple but cool opening chords. Mm-hmm. You know, we're three songs in. I'm still gushing about the melody that he has, just the way he plays. It's just, you know, it's one of the things. And I think, Davey, you'll, you can you can confirm this, too, because I know what a big Stevie Ray Vaughan fan you are. Stevie Ray Vaughan was just fluid. Like, when mm-hmm. Stevie Ray Vaughan played, he, you knew he was channeling that from another dimension. Absolutely. I mean, I was going to – I'm sorry for cutting you off, but it's kind of like um, I noticed that Ray would say, like, uh, guys like the virtuosos, like Eddie Van Halen, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jakey Lee, I think uh, Satriani, too. Um, you guys talked about this on uh, the Badlands episode. I don't know if you remember, but it's when they play, it just feels human. Right, right. And that's that's kind of what I look for, you know, and his melody kind of lends to that. You know, it's not just I'm going to go a million miles an hour because I can. There's some melody and there's some playing in there. Um, so I, I love it. And the uh, and he, that lead playing, he's like like Aaron said, he's del- like he's delivering a vocal verse. Um, and I, re- I really dig that about this song. Uh, 153, that solo cooks slightly alternating tones, gives it almost like he's doing a duel, like mm-hmm. a dual yeah. solo vo- kind yeah. of vibe, which I like. The end does get a little repetitive for me. And while I like the song, it could be a little bit shorter all right ray this is one of my favorites on the album i've always really dug that kind of tritony riff in the beginning and the crunch involved in it and the head is really kind of odd because it's kind of it's just a two-note chord progression with like a step in between but it's like down 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 it almost doesn't seem like it fits and then at the 30 second mark we get more rock like and you get more of your typical satch melody but it's a cool melody mm-hmm. it's, it's it's you know there's nothing i can't take away from that and the least bit and then and at the 1 minute 55 second mark, we get some really blues licks, kind of like down at the low end. And then like you were saying, I think he just moves it up the neck and plays it an octave above. So it oh, okay. like, that dueling effect, yeah. which really sounds fucking awesome. Um, then at the 2 minute 16 second mark, we get a brand new riff that I really dig. And we get more bluesy licks, followed by kind of some shreddy licks. And the 3 minute 16 second mark to the 3 minute 38 second mark is actually my favorite part of the song. Um, he's kind of going between these two chords, and he's playing these fast-paced scalar licks based on the Lydian, the Mixolydian modes, which I know like a big, that's like one of Vi's favorite modes is the Lydian mode, and supposedly Leonard Bernstein's, but I couldn't tell you that. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I used to, that's like, I know Davies mentioned things about, you know, listing things uh, on loop with air quotes, and... Um, yeah, this is like one of the things that like I listen to on loop, like on on my Walkman on the way to school. It's funny, but you mentioned that Satch doesn't really like this solo. The guy who actually called him on it was Steve Vai because he played Steve Vai the album. Vai's like, yeah, that design's kind of mapped out. But you know what? You know who else mapped out his solos? Brian May, and those sounded really cool. So um, I don't think that I I certainly wouldn't take away anything from it. I think that's a win on his part, not a loss. We've got more palm muted riffs. Only the tone on this is a little bit more thin and brittle as opposed to the thick and crunchy riffs we've heard so far. Again, the melodies stick. It almost makes me want to write lyrics for them. I bet I could, actually. (laughs) The chorus melody again gets harmonized and sounds sweet. Uh, Even though Joe said having the solo compose that, you know, it it constricted him playing it live. I don't know. It's a pretty badass solo to me. Like you were saying, Ray, it's lengthy with lots of fast shredding. Dude had some serious chops. Mm -hmm. These fucking drums, man. (laughs) (laughs) I dig this one, too. Hey, at least it's not the Tupperware from (laughs) St. Anger. Sorry, Mike. (laughs) I prefer that. (laughs) Well played, sir. You would. (laughs) The next track is Always With Me, Always With You. 
Davey, you like this one? Who doesn't love this one? If you do not love this track, there is something wrong with you. Wow, great tone. Aww. This song for You're going to say that a lot, aren't you? Well, that, I can't resist. This is my theme throughout this album. I mean, I know I'm kind of taking a page from your book because I, like from the uh, Lateralis episode, you said, wow, great drumming. I had to come up with wow, great tone. This song, for lack of a better phrase, is gorgeous and sexy. This is a lovely instrumental ballad that provides a decent change of pace with a great melodic tune. It's another love song that Joe wrote to his wife, Rubina. It starts off with some... Uh, those are those are maracas, right? I want to be uh, I want to confirm that. Those yeah. are maracas. Okay. Yeah, maracas, shakers, however you want to describe maracas, it. Shakers. Right. I was looking for that because I I watched that video. The uh, guy that was uh, providing that were not using maracas. It was like a shaker, I guess that's what it was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was um starts off with maracas or shakers, and I think that's either ha- actual hand claps or those like drum sounds that are you know like in some blues songs you hear like the snare like uh, take uh, like we covered a. Uh, uh, the things I uh, not the things I used to do, but Tim Pan Alley, where Chris Layton would take it, would you know make the snare sound like a clap noise. I don't know if that's the drums or if that was actual natural hand claps. Do you know what they are? They can't be natural. No way. I think it was no. Doctor Rhythm uh, from yeah. Roland. Okay. Oh, oh, hey Ray, remember the uh, uh, Russ Kunkel with the hand clapping thing in the middle of the album that you told me? There it is. There you go. See. There you go. Lovely. <laughs> but Joe's melodic runs are awesome. He even throws some like legato solos throughout the uh, track. It's a nice, uh, nice tapping section throughout the halfway, uh, halfway mark with like a killer, killer solo after, and then the uh, outro solo again with some more uh, uh, legato style stuff with the uh, track fading to the rhythm. If uh, any of you people are about to get married, if I'll be honest, if I ever do get married, I'm gonna put this as my uh, main song because I want to have like a rock and roll wedding. I also want this to be played at my funeral too because this is just lovely. What is? That's like the best way to put it. Just lovely. This is another favorite of mine off the album. All right, rock and Mike. I love this song too. Um, Electric flamenco. That's kind of what I, I wrote. And I don't know if I had watched the video, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know. There is a f- guy playing flamenco guitar at the beginning, and I don't know if I, the video kind of got in my head <laughs> as I was trying to write it out. But the uh, I love the again the melody. I'm just gonna say the melody to the verse mm-hmm. because it basically is that it's just a verse that he's that he's playing. Uh, I think he does a great job in conveying a sense of loss, but still being hopeful. It, it, it just that mm-hmm. that's kind of what the song says to me. The solo is good. That's my only knock on the song is that it's just a little over the top for the rest of the track. Although I do love it, and it is this is one of my favorite songs on the album. Ray. I think this is probably actually one of the first Satch songs I ever heard, like, in the radio, like, right around that same time yeah. period. And, like, if that was an indication of why these guys saying he was, like, this rip and shred guitarist, I was like, oh, I don't, I mean, I guess I could hear it then, but I was like, I was expecting, you know, probably something along the more like, lines of a Vi or something mm-hmm. like that. So, uh, at the time, I didn't really get it. And that, and there was, like, there was, like, this pilot TV series on in 88 where it was, like, took place in a high school. And I remember them playing that as this, like, football player was walking this cheerleader home. I thought, dude, that's lame. Why would I fucking do that? <laughs> You know, that was me at age 14. That's me at 46. Who the fuck am I kidding? <laughs> but uh, yeah, great tic tac shaker in the beginning. I, I don't know if it's a tic tac shaker. It could be aspirin, but probably is maracas. Altoids. Yeah, altoids. <laughs> and, and it's played in waltz time, which is kind of neat, neat, kind of cool. And you get these kind of gorgeous muted arpeggio section that almost reminds you of like Andy Summers from The Police. And he does a, that a couple times um, on a couple of different songs and different albums. But he's really good at it. And then we get that beautiful guitar melody on top of it. 
And then I don't know how they did it. They must have had a time machine because somehow they get Ron Burgundy to come in and throw some flute uh, for like one note at the one minute, six second mark before they go into the parallel key to and then it goes, <laughs> it goes into the parallel minor. And I like that they actually went into the, par- the parallel minor just to kind of change things up as a songwriting device. It, it, it was good. It, was, it, it, cha- it makes things different. Uncredited Ron Burgundy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, he, <laughs> I, he's, he's sort of a big deal. I don't know if Joe knew that, but uh, he's definitely a big deal. And then we get Return of the Main Head of the song at the 1 minute 33 second. And I say head because really, I mean, Joe has a jazz background. And like a lot of jazz songs have a head, a main melody. And I remember reading an interview with Stu Ham at one point where like, and he got a lot of shit. I mean, like nowadays in the era of the internet, they would have ripped Stu Ham apart. But he said that he felt like he was doing more jazz stuff with Joe's band than he than like Kenny G was because at the time Kenny G was still before he became like the songbird guy he yeah. was a respected fusion uh, saxophone player at one point yeah but that's like in the beginning of the Kenny G Schmaltz era and so I think he was trying to like draw a comparison but I mean you're not going to say that this guy was trying to be you know John McLaughlin or Al Demiola or any of those oh guys. god no yeah but uh, I can see some of the jazz influence on some of the stuff he just did it in the, the context of uh, more rock. We slow things down with shaker percussion, awful electronic hand claps, <laughs> and the main guitar passage are these gentle, clipped, arpeggiated notes that make me think of falling raindrops. The main melody is very pretty, and Joe's clearly going for a deeper emotional connection to his audience with it. These fucking drums, man. <laughs> Again, we have punctuational clean guitar flourishes, and the solo does display some speedy tapping that doesn't make your heart race or anything. It does fit in the context of this track. It gains slightly in intensity as it progresses, but it never loses its emotional center. This tune is a nice change of pace. Yeah, the two-handed tapping part, yeah, it is tasty. You know, I mean, he could have just been doing straight arpeggios, something like that, but no, it's, it's the guy has got taste. You mm-hmm. can't take that away. No, no kidding. No, sure. no one can do it like that good. And Nobody. it makes you wonder, too, like you said, if most of this album was just him improvising. Did he do the solos? What I read build is build everything behind all the afterwards? solos are improvised, and except for Crushing Day. Okay, yep. so yeah, I, don't know. I just didn't feel like he built the track, the rest of the track after. So mm. like, here's the solo. Yeah, build everything else around it. That's interesting. I don't know because you know how because he, he really does have a variety of moods and atmospheres. So mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. could very well be. Hey, I'm playing this fast one. I mean, let's com- let's compose something to just to just get back. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the solos are what you're paying attention to anyway. Really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you are. The following track is Satch Boogie. How about this one, Davey? Wow, great tone. This is where Joe gets his boogie on. Boogie, wiggy, 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 wiggy. <laughs> but it's a nice, uh, nice boogie riff. And it goes uh, at the uh, 35 second mark. That's when the solo starts. It starts off with like a little whammy note to start off. And then it goes into, like I said, it's a nice solo. It goes, the whole solo goes on for about almost exactly two minutes. Joe throws in another tapping trill part. Why not? It's a little slower than the ones on uh, the title track, Surfing with the Alien. 
Then a minute and 50 seconds through two minutes and 35 seconds at the end of the solo. Joe does a killer two-handed tapping bridge on the fifth string, which is the A string, which serves as a one of the prime examples of what's called the pitch axis theory. It's also used on uh, Not of This Earth, the uh, title track. Uh, one more run of that uh, killer boogie riff with a uh, final whammy note to leave us out. I have a little funny story regarding this song. I know I told you, uh, Aaron, that I uh, about me playing guitar. That's somewhat halfway not true because I do kind of play Rocksmith every now and then. Okay. And this song was on Rocksmith, and I was just uh, decided to go and uh, you know just mess around with the song. I decided to try the tapping trill part. I have very little experience with the guitar, but I told you I'm a uh, uh, more used to Guitar Hero. Right. So I was messing around with the tapping trill part. I hit it on the first try. So to those people who say that Guitar Hero does not teach you real guitar, tell them to F off. F off, people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't stand those people who hate on Guitar Hero. It's a video game, for goodness sakes. But <laughs> uh, No shit. Lighten up, people. Seriously. This is another favorite of mine. There are a lot of favorites of this first half of this album. Uh, Surfing with the Alien, Crushing Day, Always With Me, and Satchel Gear. Some of my favorites. This is a great tune. All right. Mike? Uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode, this is why I bought the cassette back in the day and it's ironic it ray and i seem to match up with when it comes time to like high school stories and stuff <laughs> because he mentioned our our old math teacher mrs barrows um i had this on my desk in betsy barrows class and uh a, f- a friend of ours who passed away last year uh chris so chris reaches over and he grabs the cassette off my desk pulls out the j card and he goes dude there's a typo I go, what do you mean there's a typo? He goes, he spelt it wrong. And Chris, if you knew Chris, Chris being Chris, he takes his pen and on the J card, he slowly puts a little N and changed it to Snatch Boogie. So, <laughs> so <laughs> this song has been Snatch Boogie for me since about 1989. Um, but it is the song that got me into the into Satriani and, and, um, and I, I like it. It's, it's got a cool opening groove. And then at the 34 second mark that, again, like you were saying, Davey, with the whammy bar, the video could not have sold a lot of copies for him because the, <laughs> the video, he's got like, uh, he's just like on a sound stage with like fly girls dancing in front of him. And, and then it's got some, like this weird, like black and white footage of people dancing. It, it was kind of strange. I do like the trippy breakdown. And then it's got some cool pull down tapping and uh, it closes with whammy bar and it returns back to that opening groove. It's a great, it's great track. And like I said, it's why I bought the album. Ray. It's a great song, and it starts out with a great kind of, I call it a stutter step riffage, because you almost think it's like following a certain pattern, and then it kind of dive bombs the other way, and then it comes back to where it goes. I, I can't really, I don't have like the breakdown of how it is, but that's the impression I always got of it. It doesn't sound like a straight ahead intro. It just sounds like it's a guy who's like got an idea, he's going to fuck off for a second, and he's going to get back to the main idea again. And that's cool. The song swings like a motherfucker. And he gets almost like a almost like a dime bag Daryl like demon scream on the guitar that which like leads into the main boogie part of the song. I used to think the song was a ripoff of Hot for Teacher, but now like come looking back at it, you know, so many years later, I think it's more of kind of a it was more to like ZT Top like in the Grange or the Full Bug or something like that, and just being like you know Hot for Teacher, just because, basically just because it was like a swing uh, rhythm. The solos are great. There's like some key changes underneath the solos I always thought were kind of interesting. He like start, he changes over to the four chord, but he changes to the key of the four chord. He doesn't stay in the same key. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he drops down to like the minor six chord, and he starts playing over that. Interesting songwriting device. I think it's kind of cool. 
Then at the one minute fifty second mark, we get um, some more badass tapping, which Davey had already mentioned. It's got like almost like a flange effect or something like that. I don't know if it's a flange or a phase because I can never ke- tell the difference between the two. But I love the shit out of it, and it goes. The song goes out with a lot of demon screams. It's good. Holy fuck! Real drums <laughs> playing a fast shuffle beat, and it makes all the difference in the world. You just can't beat a real human being playing with feeling as opposed to a fucking sterile drum machine. The riffs are fast and energetic, a sped-up bluesy boogie like the title suggests. Joe shows he can incorporate bluesy licks in his playing and tear it up, too. He gets some shredding in there. There's a kind of breakdown section, Ray, you're referring to it. The drums have a phasing effect on them. And Joe's solo in that section reminds me, this the Hot for Teacher reminds me of Eddie Van Halen's yeah. opening solo in Hot for Teacher. That's the first thing yeah, I thought yeah. of. This is one of the better tracks for me, and when Joe is briefly a member of Deep Purple, the band played this regularly live. Oh, that had to be mint. Holy shit, dude. Whoa. The next track is Hill of the Skull. Davey, what do you say? Well, there's uh, not much going on here. It's uh, another change of pace. It's uh, I'm thinking this is just a little interlude with some uh, guitar playing and a very, very slow tempo, uh, tempo excuse me, uh, which I'm not sure if it's supposed to be an intro to the f- next track. Uh, well, uh, there's no shredding, but it sounds like it would make a nice build up to something. I'm guessing. I don't know if this is supposed to be like filler stuff, but I mean, it, it, it's not bad. Um yeah, like I said, there's just not much going on. I'm I'm obviously going to uh, knight this as Davies in fact a song selection, but it like I said, it's not bad, but oh well. What what can you do? <laughs> Rock and Mike. Well, it is the most metal title on the album. So <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, Joe's attempt at power metal. Like, <laughs> I am on the hill of the skull, and I will smote thee with my sword. Um, it's, uh, the, it, I, I, I love wrote, some of the song titles on here, though. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's just, it was just kind of, it just kind of, it seems out of place. I wrote that it was epic, it was grand, and it was completely unnecessary. Great opening for a new D&D camp- campaign. We're here to play D&D. Not <laughs> not tell jokes. We're here to play D&D, not tell jokes. Um, so I roll my 20 sided die and I have my mage tell Joe to stick it because this is completely, I don't like this at all. <laughs> Ray, how about you? Um, it's kind of, I guess it was inspired. He was reading, uh, I think I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Khalil Gibran, who was like a Lebanese poet or something like that. He was, uh, and he had wrote this poem about like, uh, the crucifixion or something like that. And something about it mentioned the hill of the skull. And I guess that was kind of the germ that's started the idea for this song or song or interlude or whatever you want to call it. I've actually kind of always dug it for always. You know what? It, it reminds me of the music to uh, Conan the Barbarian. And I love the score to Conan the Barbarian. So. <laughs> I almost compared it to Man of War. Like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I uh, something off like Kings of Metal. Yeah. yeah. You know, just kind of that kind of like big epic fucking pompous. Yeah. Yeah. Like loincloth wearing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or in Man of War's case, a fur loincloth. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. I, I can. I can see that without a doubt. I did kind of. I, I even kind of like the weird synthy. I, I, I guess it's a synth vocal effect in the background. It almost sounds like some like weird kind of Gregorian chant thing. 
Um, and there's not really any guitar minis on this. It's just all built on octaves. So it's, mm. um, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it a song. It's, it's, it's okay. It, it, I don't mind it. To me, this sounds like some kind of atmospheric theme for a science fiction or fantasy movie. Like you're saying Conan or, I don't know, with the eerie keyboard voices and the guitarist playing that slow, haunting melody. But these fucking drums. <laughs> the oh song is short, only 1 minute 49 seconds. And at the end, the guitarists sound like they're screaming in pain or fright as the track comes to a close. Maybe Conan's just killing everybody. I don't know. <laughs> what is good? <laughs> Crush your enemies. It's creepy and I like it. <laughs> the See them driven the before you. <laughs> the following track is Circles. Davey, what do you say? Well, the tone comes back. That's great news. It starts off with some kind of uh, weird... What, what is that that starts off? It's a little weird noise that kind of starts off. What is that? Guitar. I think it's... No, I don't know. I, I think no it's idea. a kindergartner's broken bicycle being driven through, like, you know, a, a post-apocalyptic city. That's what you're hearing. Is that little squeaky thing? Yeah. I think that's actually stock noises, because I've heard that kind of effect on other things, too. Yeah. It's in the beginning um, of uh, Aerosmith's Jamie's Got a Gun. Yeah. They yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. In fact, it's like the- like squeaking metal. Like you got like a metal tube or something, and you're dragging it along. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh, okay, okay. That that sounds right. The drums are making a little bit of a very very quiet tempo. Um, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't I don't really have a too much of a bag with electronic drums, but um, they're they're making a very very uh like atmospheric uh, rhythm going on there. Part of the main passage, which is a nice passage with some nice simmering guitar playing by Joe. At one minute, four second mark, the track crescendos into a killer solo where Joe just pulls the ripcord yet again. This is another one of my favorite solos on this album. It shows off uh, Joe's nice vibrato, and I love Joe's vibrato. I mean, I love the uh, vibratos of like, uh, like the virtuosos, like SRV, uh, like George Lynch, um, Jakey Lee, those guys. I think those have some of the best vibratos I've ever heard. Those are just a few examples. And then at the end of the solo, it goes right back to the quiet passage. And then the outro is uh, just some drums and a uh, synth swell and then some chimes, which I think it sounds like a transition to the following track. Because if you listen to the album, it just immediately goes into the next song. I don't know if that's supposed to be an actual segue to uh, the next song, but other than that, nice. All right. Mike? I, I really like this track a lot. This is probably one of my favorite ones on the album. I love the opening. The guitar's got a tone to it that I couldn't... That I couldn't put my finger on. I was wondering if it was like an electric 12 string because it's got like some doubled notes, mm. but I, I'm not really sure. But I, I really like it. It's understated, melodic. I put acoustic. The program drums on this, they are getting old. Like it's, <laughs> they, that's my knock on this song is those drums again. Then at the minute six mark, he opens the floodgates. And the thing I like about this, I like how he knows when to let a note ring out and when he knows 
to abuse the shit out of it and not let it up for air. Um, he just has a great sense for that when he solos, and that's what I that's what I love about it. Perfect shredding. Back out with the opening, and then those wind, ch- wind chimes. There's <laughs> never enough wind chimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like, there's a great version of this on Satriani Live, so check that out. All right. Ray? Oh, Mike, this is actually one of my favorites on here, too. Um, I guess he was working at a guitar shop giving guitar lessons when he kind of came up with the idea for it. He's... And what he was thinking, his goal or his prompt when he wrote this was he was going to come with, with some uh, create riffs that weren't like they were melodic and rhythmic, but without having like real harmony behind it. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't. I think I think it's a really kind of. I think the intro is probably my favorite part. I mean, I love mm-hmm. the entire song, but the intro and the outro are my favorite parts. From what I guess, when he was talking, was it Jeff Campitelli who did the drum programming? Or one of the drum programmers on this album. The programmer was Bongo Bob. Yeah, Bongo Bob. Oh, I guess what, what in the interview he said he was talking to Jeff. So he, maybe they did like a demo version with Jeff, and then they did like a, that's possible. Death. But he said he told Jeff to like play some sort of like weird spacey reggae behind like the intro, and then he said, oh. "Then I want you to play something completely boneheaded." <laughs> and so <laughs> at the one minute four second mark, and we get into real rock R A W K rock. It's completely <laughs> boneheaded. Well, I mean, all the drums on this are pretty fucking boneheaded. Let's be honest, but um. Yeah, we get this change from like a kind of a soothing kind of thing into rock. The solos are great. There's great lurk. I mean, it really is just playing over three chords for the first part. Then at the one minute, 27 second mark, we get a key change, which is actually, once again, it's the four chord. Like a lot of rock and blues we've all talked about, it's built on a one, four, five chord. And that's what he does. But instead of like staying in the same key, he alters the key to fit the chord that he's playing over, which makes, which, uh, you know, opens things up for him for like melodic ideas. Then at the 1 minute 39 second mark, we go back to the original idea. And then at the 1 minute 51 second mark, we were playing over the 5 chord, which is that chord that you always want resolved back to the first tone that you hear to begin with. And we get some really long, sustained notes. Then at the 2 minute 15 second mark, we go back to the intro. For me, this song almost harkens back to the Not of This Earth era Satriani. And if I had to sequence it, and if I had to go back and put on I would put this right after Brother John, because uh, Brother John's a lot like the intro, too. But, you know, I mean... Kind of like Cheech and Chong. It's the same, but different, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then we get some nice electronic bongos on the way out and wind chimes. <laughs> yes. Happy little wind chimes. Yeah. <laughs> so we got more atmospherics that leads to an echoed clean guitar figure that serves as the song's intro. But these fucking drums, man, throw a woodblock in there. And oh, yeah, all's <laughs> forgiven. <laughs> the middle of the track blasts off with some frenzied soloing. And I like the chords that are played underneath them. Joe rings some wailing notes out of his guitar to close out the solo, and we're back to the opening clean section to bookend the track, or make it come full circle, if you will. (laughs) As it fades to more keyboard atmospherics and percussive noises, like we're in some sort of primitive tribal setting. George of the Jungle, I don't know. (laughs) Joe's maintaining the variety in the music, and I appreciate that. The next track is Lords of Karma. How about this one, Davey? Another cool song title. I mean, fitting for a, like a metal album, like uh, like a Rocket Mike mentioned earlier. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> fitting for a metal album. 
<laughs> but um, the tone is still here. They uh, the chimes uh, from uh, the last track kind of feels like it segues into this really weird intro. I like the uh, main passage that uh, has some more lines that go on top of the bass. At minute 37 through a minute 48, some whammy swells before the solo starts, and he throws some whammy, more whammy in the solo, which is just so awesome. Two minutes and 30 seconds, it feels like you're in a, like a desert place, like a uh, just any kind of desert region with that little bell, I guess that's what it is, like you'd hear in like those, uh, like say Aladdin or something, I guess. It feels like you're in a desert region, which is a cool touch, I, I guess. It, it's kind of cool. Then it goes back to the main passage with uh, yet another fade out. I think this track is kind of underrated, but yeah, yeah, I still dig this one. All right. Mike? If not for Hill of the Skull, this would have been my least favorite on the album. Where the others have nice melody, regardless of the speed. There's all, you know, it doesn't matter what the speed, anything else that he's playing on this album. Wherever the speed, you know, regardless of speed, there's always good melody is what I'm trying to say. This sounds whiny to me. And when the tempo picks up, it's decent, but it just sounds uninspired. I can skip this one every day. Uh, and I, there's nothing I can put on it. If you had told me to pick one song where it was completely mapped out, I would have guessed this track. I would have been wrong, but I would have guessed this track. <laughs> Ray. I guess Joe came up. Does he say came with up the two chords when he was like in high school? He got back from a party at four thirty in the morning, and he like ran across those little intro chords, and he's like, "Well, I'll just put that one in the back burner until somebody tells me that like I ripped it off from somebody else." But then he ended up digging it off with this song, and uh, I'll be honest, I used to hate this piece. This used to be like my least favorite song too. And I think it was the sitar too, because at this point, my only other exposure to a sitar is like I didn't acknowledge the Beatles. But it probably would have been like fucking Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. Mm-hmm. And like at the time, I hated that song. Now I love it. And Again, nothing else matters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and wherever I may roam. Mm. Anyway, the sitar <laughs> melody is actually played on a, a choral sitar, which I think is the same thing as wherever I may roam. <laughs> and Satch borrowed it off some dude named Rat Dog that worked at like Subway Guitars or something like that. Um, the song does have some. Really cool, simple, melodic ideas. Um, at the one-minute mark, we get kind of a cool key change with, you know, whammy-inflected melody. I think we talked about that in some earlier tracks, and then here's case in point. And his vibrato with the whammy bar, and this song kind of almost reminds me a little bit of Vito Brada. Mm. Yeah. Do you hear that? I can hear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Vito's another great guy with whammy. Mm-hmm. He does oh, yeah. a lot more than just dive bombs. Oh, Vito can shred. Oh, mm-hmm. fucking A, man. The guy was a beast. Then at the one-minute, 49-second mark, we get kind of get pretty shreddy, but it's melodic and it's tasteful. And then I think, Dave, you had mentioned that breakdown at the two minute 30 second mark. We got a breakdown complete with sleigh bells? <laughs> like I said, the Aladdin thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is it Aladdin or, you know, it's I, like. I, don't, uh, I, I, got, I don't know, but it just feels like. He's it. trying to get people in the Macy's right after Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't <laughs> fucking know. <laughs> and then we get that sitar solo melody. Um, it's weird, but I actually kind of love that part of the song. And then we return to the head at the 3 minute 14 second mark. And then at 3 minutes and 38 seconds, we get a new melody, which I love. We get some guitar harmonies at the end, and it's out. Yeah. I am the Lord of Karma, and I desire sitar. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that electric sitar playing the intro, and then these fucking drums trying to be all bombastic and just coming off as soulless thuds. No amount of production tricks are going to improve this shit, and it stifles many of the grooves this album tries to generate. The main riff itself is another good one. I like it. And this track moves at a pretty fast clip while Joe explores many different and interesting melodic ideas over it. I think you said that right. 
He once again utilizes guitarmony to separate the different melodic sections, and the solo is fleet and shreds all over the map, uh, fretboard. The breakdown brings back the sitar with more percussion and stupid echoey drums and kind of resets the song back to square one. Then there's a new harmonized outro section, and it's hummable and memorable. This track's another winner for me. The penultimate track is Midnight. thoughts this one's really cool this is some amazing two-handed tapping to start this track off this is just amazing it just shows on how much of a virtuoso like joe satriani gets it done on this guitar but the two-handed tapping is at a high tempo which kind of gives it a, a spanish finger style effect there's a barely noticeable bass line underneath it but you can barely hear it uh, it goes back into the intro tapping passage but it goes into different tempos then it stops i wonder if it's just me that's thinking this, but I think this is pretty much Joe's version of Spanish Fly from Van Halen 2. This one's breathtaking, in my opinion. All right. Mike? I like this a lot, too. It's a, it's a nice recovery from the previous track. I like the tapping as well, Davey. I'm on board with you on that. The, that tapping uh, sets both the mood while building tension at the same time, which I, I, I dig that a lot. I found myself a lot in researching this album listening to a lot of live versions of these tracks because of the studio production techniques were grinding on me and i i do like satriani so i was going out looking at a bunch of different stuff so again there's some great footage from a russian clinic on youtube where he's playing this and that's pretty cool and while this came out first it's reminiscent of extremes midnight express off of uh waiting for the punchline um, which was their fourth album. So those two are kind of, there's some definite crossover similarities, but Satch owns it because this one came out first. But I, I, I dig this track. All right, Ray. Well, Dave Bates, my uh, mm-hmm. dungeon master extraordinaire. <laughs> I'm actually, actually the one who got him into this. And, oh, no uh, kidding. This is like one of our favorite tracks on this album. Um, and this one, I, I, for years, I didn't know, like, really know what was going on. And then a buddy of mine who uh, moved into the dorm room next to me, Bill Morris, he actually showed me how to play it. I can't play it well, but he showed me the notes that he's playing and how he taps it out. Like, I can play it really piss poor. <laughs> but um, this, this is really the first time that I remember hearing tapped chords. I mean, at the time, I didn't really think of, like, the intro to Mean Streets, but there were some tapped chords mm-hmm. in that, too. But, like, mm-hmm. this is, like, really the, my first exposure to it. And now you guys got, got guys like Andy McKee or Khaki King who can actually do great stuff with tapped chords all over the place. But for me, this is kind of the intro to that. Sat said it was inspired by Baroque composers and Eddie Van Halen, but at the same time, he didn't want to like completely ape Eddie Van Halen. And I don't think you can really accuse him of that on this song. No, I think no, it's pretty unique no. to him. Um, it starts out rubato, which for those who aren't in the know, it's just no tempo. It's left up to the discretion of the performer. It has almost kind of a mournful, wistful uh, quality to the melody. Then at the 26-second mark, we get some like rhythmic development with synthesized hand claps or drum machine hand claps in the background of course you don't get like the weird yodeling effect that you had in the back on headless or the headless horseman (laughs) out of this earth which is good and then at the one minute 16 second mark we go back to that kind of rubato melody and the ending itself is actually kind of uplifting sounding it starts the whole song is kind of in a minor key and then 
They go back and they change it to a major key. It's kind of like the old trick of the Picardy third. Start out minor, go major. Uh, yeah, Joe can tap and shred. He's got nothing to prove to me about that. Davey, did you say it reminded you of Spanish Fly? Uh, I'll be honest. Um, uh, one of y'all brought up uh, Van Halen. That's that's just what I thought. Yeah. I wonder if this was like it just it just it just kind of reminds me of Spanish Fly. I sure. know this was not done on like an acoustic or a nylon string, but it just makes me feel like that. My point is that it, it's sort of like a cross between Spanish Fly and Cathedral. With that echoey thing, so mm. I, I hear a lot of Van Halen in this. It it is Joe's thing, but it I do pick up a lot of Van Halen isms in this. Yeah, I did too. Now I much prefer Headless Horseman. This type of virtuosity, and though there's nothing wrong with this, it's a very well composed piece. It's impressive. I don't need it on this. I like everything else better. So this is gonna have to be Aaron's stinky stinker. <laughs> And that brings us to the final track, Echo. Let's have it. Davey's going to give it to you. It's another change of pace for the album. It starts with a, a little bass rhythm. It, um, this is the longest track on the album, of course. It starts with a nice bass rhythm. That's way up front in the mix. You really hear that bass going on. While the guitar is pretty quiet, it seems like it's, in the, it's, it's pretty much in the background of the bass with uh, another cool passage and uh, some harmonics thrown in there. Uh, the solo sounds like it's being built, kind of built up as it goes on. Um, more of his vibrato is showcased in this. I Like I said, I can't get enough of Joe's vibrato. Uh, it goes back into the main line after the solo with the bass up front, and the guitar is calm and soothing in this one. At four minutes and seven seconds, Mark, is that an organ I hear? Hmm? Is that organ? Yes. <laughs> There's some more of the uh, organ that goes on throughout the rest of the track as it closes out, but it's a really worthy closer to this album. Rocket Mike. I actually said the same thing. Great end to the album. It wasn't expected. I, I expected you go through, you would you would think that it would be a complete shred fest, that he would just open the gates and go out. And uh, he doesn't. Instead, it's moody, atmospheric. And even as it builds, the song really never loses its compositional quality. There's some great phrasing in it. And uh, finally, stuff is happening underneath. That's you know, this is kind of what I've been looking for, for through the whole thing. You know, it's like I got it. Joe can play, and while it's awesome, I was really hoping to hear more kind of underneath. And I'd like to firmly blame Super Listener Sam for that because after the Hot Rats episode, I've been listening to so much Zappa. There's always something going on. <laughs> so, so I've been listening to tons of Zappa, and then they go into this. That the drums really killed me. Um, and uh, but this one's got some. Um, just some cool stuff going on all over. Uh, cool bass line. It's solid, but it's filled with a lot of space at the same time. The organ, I think there's some good key placements in here, too. I really like this track. All right. Ray? Well, I guess Joe said that with this song, he had heard a story about a friend of a relative of his who had lost their baby in childbirth, and they tried to get pregnant again, and they had a baby, and they named the baby Echo to kind of, you know, like as, as a gesture to the baby that had passed away. Um Starts out with kind of like a cool bass line and drum. It, it stopped. I can't, dude. I got to say, there's something Dave Bates pointed out to me years ago when we first listened. 
This, for those of us who are connoisseurs back in the day, is perfect 80s porno music. <laughs> <laughs> this is the... And it, but it's like one of those serious plot lines where, like, you know, two girls are taking on this guy who's a business tycoon who's trying to, like, destroy the environment or some shit like that. And they, they, both, they both ball him. And then they, like, he gets thrown in jail, and it's like, Tony, you're going to jail! And Tony ends up going to jail, like, you fucking bitches, set me up! <laughs> and then, like, and then Heather and Christine are sitting there afterwards, and like, gee, Heather, I wouldn't be able to put Tony away for good if it hadn't been off of your legwork. <laughs> Speaking of legwork... And then we go to the scissor fuck scene. We go to the oral sex scene. You know, the whole nine yards. Or maybe that's just me. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, seriously, it's just you. Turn, watch a porno movie, turn the music down, and put this on in the background. And this is the perfect lesbian sex scene music, man. I always thought that was like the People's Court theme song. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the People's Court. Dun, 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 dun. Doug Llewellyn, do you feel you beat the uh, cock? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, I, I sorry. I had to, that, that's for Dave Bates. I don't know where you are these days, but that's for you, man. Thank you for pointing that out. That stood by. I stood by that in 1980 when you said it, and I will or 88, 88, 89, and I will stand by it today in 2020. Once again, we get these kind of cool muted arpeggios and harmonics underneath, and people forget that Joe Ciatriani actually, when he put his mind to it, he really knew how to fill space with, with his guitar. Like you had <laughs> mentioned, you were looking for stuff that was underneath. He could add like weird chords and weird rhythms, and if you want a good example of that, even though the song is kind of laughable, check out the snake on Out of This Earth. There's weird rhythm guitar stuff going on underneath it, and I don't... Oh, just, well, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not your standard, like, he's not trying to be like Jimmy Nolan or anything like that, or do like standard funk disco stuff. It's just his own kind of thing when we get another beautiful melody at the 36 second mark and we have this power this distorted power chord kind of comes in after the melody it kind of fades in at the one minute 48 second mark and goes out to like the one minute 55 second mark now for me i love the opening of his solo it almost sounds to me like a saxophone player like breathing into the saxophone with the phrase it doesn't even like start on like a major beat of the song of course i couldn't even tell you what the time to signature of this is for this song but he picks an offbeat to like to come in on the solo which is kind of something that jazz guys will do and people forget that he was a student of Lenny Tristano's and Lenny Tristano was like one of the he was like this weird reclusive dude on the west coast who was like a big name in the cool jazz scene like you know with Stan Getz and those guys and you know Chet Baker his playing is just really super fluid um and that two minute 30 31 31st the 32nd mark he plays these really kind of muted passages that almost Which kind of reminds it the 30th or 31st of the it's a two minute 31st <laughs> i don't what i wrote 30 okay from two minute 31 to 32 okay so i said that one second interval <laughs> between two minutes and 31 to 32 he plays these weird muted passages that kind of almost sound like rory gallagher it's if you haven't listened to rory gallagher's the irish tour get out there and check out that album davy i think you'd appreciate it because you like blues i'll keep that in mind yeah no definitely it'll, it'll knock your in county socks off in the three minute forty nine second mark, we return to the head, um, and we get like a weird little piano flourish at the four minute and eight seconds. This kind of playing that he's doing now really resurfaces when he gets to his self titled album. It's like a little bit more introspective sounding. Yeah. Um, and to kind of echo what you said, it's kind of a, it's an unusual choice to go out on, but I dig it. Yeah. So, no fault there. Oh yeah, Joe does play bass on this album. Davey said that, but who cares? Joe sure as shit doesn't. But this leads off with some thumping bass notes that give this track a different feel than what we've heard so far. And these fucking drums, along with some brush or maybe sandpaper percussion, actually does give this tune an interesting start-and-stop rhythmic flavor. 
There's a clean guitar arpeggiating over the beat again, with harmonics peppering in here and there, and the usual quick, clean guitar strums that occasionally make an appearance whenever Joe plays his mid-tempo material on this record, along with short keyboard glissandos that serve to shake things up. On the electric side, there's more drawn-out melodic goodness that works well over the dense rhythms, and the solos show a bit more restraint than we're used to on this album. The shredding is kept to a minimum, which is pretty good. This is a rhythmically complex closer that's not my favorite track, but it works. It's not a fail by any means. Now that the track-by-track track is ended, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0-5 to five system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is programmed drum hell. <laughs> Davey, what are your final thoughts on Surfing with the Alien? My final thoughts are, um, you can definitely tell that this was going to be Joe Satriani's breakthrough album. Uh, this is his only platinum-selling album. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I would appreciate this album a lot more if they were actual drums. I do agree with you on that, but you know what? I don't care. I'm going to be making up a new term for this podcast. I love Joe Satriani's guitar history. Bam. History. Ooh, nice. Wow. That's a, new, that's a new term for you. But yeah, Joe Satriani is what I love to call a guitar test. I mean, he does art himself. So, I mean, his, his guitar playing is a form of art in and of itself. This is a one of the quintessential guitar albums, and it pretty much this album solidified my love for the virtuosos like SRV, Joe Satriani, Jakey Lee. You know, a lot of those guys were influenced like by the blues guitarists. I do not have any complaints for this album whatsoever. I mean, but like you said, the drums did bug me, but that's pretty much all I got. I love how he 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 has such musical knowledge, and he would experiment with different elements. Like if you were to listen to. Uh, I haven't listened to Engines of Creation, but uh, the perfect example is like Devil's Slide. That's the only song I know off that album where he would go into different elements. I mean, I don't really – I'm not a big fan of techno music, but that song's uh, cool to me. I mean, hey, Joe Satriani's in it. But this album proves that what can be done on a piece of wood with six strings on it. Now, uh, back on Aerosmith uh, episode, uh, Ray, you mentioned how those uh, that music were your friends. Mine too. Um, I was one of those guys that were looked down upon uh, a lot because, uh, I mean – I hate to feel like I'm whining about being bullied for a lot of things, but that's that's me stating the truth. I mean, I was a little bit different, and music was like a very, very big friend to me. If it weren't for guys like SRV and Satriani, I wouldn't have picked up a, you know, tried even tried a real guitar or even picked up Guitar Hero. So I completely respect Joe Satriani or the Virtuosos in general. I'm going to be keeping this album very close to me. I give this album a five stars. This is truly a Desert Island disc for me. Excellent. Rock and Mike. I give it a three and a half. No. <laughs> um, no, I give I give it a three and a half only because of the sterile sound to some of it. I love any of the footage of Satch playing it live, which I've, I mentioned a couple times. That's my only knock on the album. I would I love watching him play live. I love the songs, but it just. At points, it was a little too sterile for me. And I do own a lot of Satriani, and I do go back to it periodically. And like I said, since since I first got this album, I've always had a copy of it. So I do go back to it. Um, but yeah, three and a half. All right. Ray? Um, you know what? With the time this came out in like 87, yeah, there was guys like, you know, the Ingves and a lot of other guys. But uh, I would say that this is a little bit of a different album than, than, than a lot of stuff that was going on at that time. Did it suffer from really shitty dr- electronic drums? Yeah, yeah, you can't deny that. And I'm sure Relativity Records didn't have like a lot of coin. Sash was a great guitarist. And you, you cannot deny the amount of plectrums that he sent on their way to like influence other people as well. Um, great sense of melody. 
and hey, great tone. Hey. <laughs> I take a page out of Davy's book hey. here. I, I will say that. I mean, that's really the only guy playing an Ibanez that these days I would want to buy an Ibanez because of. Because I'm just not down with a lot of the other Ibanez products. But he makes the Ibanez kind of cool for me. Um, so I'm going to give this about a four and a half. Is it the one kind of know I'm going back again? Is it my favorite Satriani album? No, but it, it's a good album. The story goes that 14-year-old Joe Satriani heard at football practice that Jimi Hendrix had died, and that inspired him to quit the football team to become a guitarist. In 1974, he studied music with jazz guitarist Billy Bauer and jazz pianist Lenny Tristano, which Ray mentioned, both of whom influenced his playing. Joe began teaching guitar, and many of his former students became famous in their own right, such as Steve Vai, Larry Lalonde, Rick Hunolt, Kirk Hammett, Andy Timmons, Charlie Hunter, Kevin Cadigan, and Alex Skolnick. He had a stint in the Greg Kinn Band, which helped him pay off his credit card debt amassed while recording his first album, Not of This Earth. For his second album, Joe had a budget of only $13,000, which limited his equipment and forced him to lean on a drum machine for most of the tracks. When it was released, Surfing with the Alien was a success and helped establish Joe as a respected rock guitarist. And this was a golden age of shred guitar. So many great players came up around this time. We've mentioned only a few of them. And they pushed the style to the forefront of rock playing. I remember it being sort of an unofficial standard for guitarists. You know, like, yeah, but how fast can he shred? Now, I no longer think that way, but I still get a thrill from hearing the technique done well. And Joe Satriani had the goods. He had stellar technique combined with a strong melodic sensibility that made its way into his compositions. I do have a huge problem with this record, though. I've been saying it the entire podcast, and it's something that Joe couldn't do much about. The drums make the rhythm section sound artificial and sterile. And though at the time, Joe's playing rose above this flaw, with the advent of the internet today... You can go out to, I think, Ray, you've mentioned this kind of thing. You can go out to YouTube and see, I don't know, an eight-year-old Romanian girl shred along to a jam track that doesn't sound a whole lot different from this record. <laughs> like I said, it's not Joe's fault. Still, this is an enjoyable listen for me, and I give it a three and a half. This is an influential album, and there was a time you'd catch me dead before I would listen to an instrumental rock album. And Joe Cetriani was one of the guys who brought me around to giving it a chance and eventually becoming a big fan of it. There's a reason why he's the biggest-selling instrumental rock guitarist of all time, and this record is a big part of that. Now we'd like to thank the voodoo child, Davey Lee Smith, for suggesting this album and coming back on the podcast. Hope you had fun, man. It's always, it's, I don't think I've ever had a bad time on here. I mean, I'm not as good as you guys, but hey, I still have fun. But thank you so very kindly for having me back on here. And I've been Davey Lee Smith, making like a fetus and heading out. Until next time. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Let us know and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host the show with us, and we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you.
So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. I'm Mike. And I'm Ray. See ya. We're here to play D&D, not tell jokes. <laughs> you know that Russell Cockle's gonna spank you for a talk. Rear, rear. Like is the kind of the juxtaposition between that crunchy riff and then he's got uh, almost like uh what the fuck did I write there? <laughs> you can't read your own handwriting? Oh no, I write like a two-year-old with a busted hand, man. <laughs> Fucking Oh, okay, alright. Let me back that one up, okay. <laughs> it's great, it's creepy and I like it. Um. <laughs> You know what the great thing about that movie is? It's fucking James Earl Jones' bangs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. James Earl Jones, so fucking bang. stunning. <laughs> this is going to scream. Imagine if, if you ever decide to cover Austrian Death Machine. <laughs> Get to the chapel. Get to the chapel. <laughs> it is not a tumor. <laughs> Simulation of Catherine Hepburn on that. <laughs> oh my god! Did you see Humphrey Bogart? Oh my god! <laughs> we were in the African Queen. Oh my god! It's like it's like Catherine Hepburn meets Judy Garland, kill-headed Julie, Judy Garland. African Queen's a great movie. Fucking A, dude. That movie's the tits, man. I'm still with kill-headed Judy Garland. <laughs> <laughs> Skins were horrible to me. Oh, <laughs> I came into my dressing room with some peanut butter, some jelly, and some Vaseline. You've never lived until you've had a thigh massage from Burt Lahr. And those bastards brought Chucky peanut butter. And I threw it right in Ray Bulge's face. Well, the yellow McGrown. It took him three weeks to get it out of that lion's costume. He can meet me in St. Louis anytime. <laughs>